some of the inefficiencies and problems I were seeing at the job and that Toro and myself were actively trying to fix and make better and do different things. And I said, I just thought there was a big gap in my knowledge and that it could be done better being in-house. So I said, you know, screw it. Let's, let's move to Florida. Let's try it. You know, let's try to build this thing. And I said, worst case scenario, like, you know, I just turn around and go find another job and do something else. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Chris Grinzing. Chris is the founder of JAG Communities, which is a vertically integrated, multifamily-focused investment firm based out of Jacksonville, Florida. Chris started his real estate journey in 2016 by attempting to flip houses on Long Island. And after months of failing, he attempt, uh, of attempting to flip uh, properties, he moved into the multifamily space with a company called Toro Real Estate. And while at Toro, he purchased over 4,000 units worth $300 million and over 1,000 units in Florida in over four and a half years. So I'm going to stop right there and just say, Chris, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on, bud. Absolutely. Well, Chris, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Uh, cookie dough, for sure. Goes cookie back dough. to when I was a kid. And I remember my parents used to get pissed because I would actually like scoop the cookie dough out. So I get the little bit left at the end and just eat it. And they were like, what's the point of that? So yeah, it's a longstanding favorite. Yeah, I went to uh, the Titans game this weekend because I'm in Nashville uh, and they beat the Chiefs. We're, we're looking good this year. And my <laughs> buddy came back after having one too many bourbons. And we had some cookie dough in the fridge and he just went and grabbed a big old scoopful of it and started eating it. And I'm like, man, I hope you don't get sick, but it would, uh, yeah. it looked delicious. No, it's great. Love yeah. Are it. you a cone or waffle guy or waffle or a bowl guy? Um, I'll probably go bowl. Cause I like toppings on it. Nothing too crazy, but like M&M's, some candies, maybe some sprinkles or something and just cones get too messy. So yeah. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yes. Yeah, so like you alluded to, so I run a company called Jag Communities, a uh, vertically integrated multifamily investment company. Right now we have uh, 40 units uh, under management, uh, 16 unit and a 24 unit that we've bought since November of last year. So we're just coming up on a one year, basically. Um, moved down from New York at that time to start it and basically just focused on like value add, opportunistic, kind of unique existing multifamily deals in like the small to mid-size space, we'll call it 10 to 80 units and just trying to dive into property management, construction management and figure it all out. Cause I'd never done that in a previous life. So came down and figured I would figure it out. So focus on that size. I think you can find a little bit better yields, a little bit better deals, a little bit better opportunities than your 150 unit space. Um, but my 10 year vision is to scale to 500 million in assets under management to do that will necessitate going a little bit more regional and definitely bigger. So, you know, eventually I'll be moving up into the 100, 150 plus unit space. And then hopefully too, uh, I would like to get into some development as well. So maybe be 10 to 25% of the business will be some sort of new development as well. Awesome. Well, I want to dig into how you're planning on getting there, but before we do, where did your real estate journey begin? Yeah. So it started, I, I predated a little bit. So I graduated college in 2014 played division one soccer, no plan, ended up landing a division two coaching job, got very lucky getting that. So I moved up to Massachusetts for a year and that was an amazing experience. I loved it, but it really showed me that coaching wasn't going to be the long-term route. 
just not a lot of money in it. You're basically a glorified youth soccer coach because that's where the money is. And the college coach is like the real job, but you do other things to support it. So you work more hours than I do now and make a heck of a lot less. Um, you know, you also end up working seven days a week for fall and spring, sometimes even summer. Um, so it's not always the best. So it wasn't for me. I also miss New York and I knew if I wanted to move up in that world, I'd have to be willing to move wherever, kind of whenever. And I didn't want to live in the middle of Louisiana or something like that. So I was like, not for me. So got another coaching job for college in New York and then got a job as a cold caller for stock brokerage firm to kind of make my way into the business world. And it was great. Loved investing, loved business, hated stock brokerage. Um, did not like the industry, didn't like the philosophy behind it, didn't like kind of what it meant. You know, basically the bulk of it was, it was all about, you know, how much can a client make me in commissions and not what am I going to make the client? So, you know, I got licensed and that's kind of when I got licensed, when I really like, it like really hit me. I was like, okay, we need a way out. I was fortunate enough that my mom and cousin bought a flipping course the same month I got licensed. So I got licensed January, 2016. That's when they started that flipping course. I went to like the weekend seminar and then we just, you know, we kind of got hooked and we were trying to flip houses on nights and weekends. Uh, we were brand new, new next to nothing. So we were kind of trying to figure it out and we were doing it all sorts of wrong, even with the course, but we tried it for a few months started kind of learning more and started realizing what we were doing wrong. But then we also kind of looked at it and said, like, just don't know that this is going to be a great long-term play. We just weren't sure that it was really right for us. And my mom and my cousin also started looking at the tax side and they were like, we don't want to increase our tax burden. We want to decrease it. So started looking at some other things, looked at flipping out of state, looked at taxis, and then eventually kind of fell into multifamily. So we met uh, John Cohen, who's one of the co-owners at Toro, where I worked, but we met him. We actually partnered on a few deals. So we started as passive investors, then partnered on about 100 units uh, by syndicating them. And then while we were doing our last deal, I was ready to leave being a stockbroker in small world. John had worked for the same people, just at a different company and left five, six years prior him and his partner, Don at Toro, were looking to bring somebody in. They were focused on much larger deals, 150, 500 unit properties, five to $50 million per property. And I was like, can I come work for you guys? Can we do it? You know, work some out. And he's like, all right, let's try it out. See how it goes. And just worked really well. Stayed there for four and a half years, eventually headed up their Florida operations. So we bought 4,000 units. A thousand of those were in Florida. Um, I oversaw it all. Uh, we went full cycle. We bought seven deals, went full cycle on two while I was there. They're actually in the process of selling a third right now. Um, and it was just an invaluable experience. And just got to the point where I started looking for a deal on the side for myself, not really intending to leave. COVID happened. I thought it was going to be a really good buying opportunity. Uh, found this deal kind of in like August of 2020. And just as I was going through the process, a lot of people were asking if this meant I was leaving. If I was going to do something else, even John kind of sat me down. I was like, what are you doing? And I was like, no, like I'm not leaving. And then I just started thinking about it more. And I was like, well, why shouldn't I like, you know, let's, you know, what's the reason not to go do it. And I had kind of been thinking a lot about um, vertical integration, property management in-house, some of the inefficiencies and problems I were seeing at the job and that Toro and myself were actively trying to fix and make better and do different things. And I said, I just thought there was a big gap in my knowledge and that it could be done better being in-house. So I said, you know, screw it. Let's 
Let's move to Florida. Let's try it. You know, let's try to build this thing. And I said, worst case scenario, like, you know, I just turn around and go find another job and do something else. So move down and it's been great. I love it. Yeah. I want to dig into the uh, vertically integrated, but before we get there, um, it's funny you mentioned that about the soccer, because when I graduated college, I actually went and got my master's in sport administration and I was coaching high school football at the time. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go coach football. And so I was applying for GA ships and all that kind of stuff. And then it hit me because I'm a Tennessee fan. I went to the university of Tennessee. Philip Fulmer got fired that year after spending 32 years at the school from student to grad assistant, to assistant coach, to head coach, won a national title, all these things, and then got let go. And that's when it really hit me. Like there's no loyalty in sports. One, two, you make nothing because if you don't want to do it, there's somebody coming up that wants to work in sports and thinks it's glamorous and they will outwork you long hours wise. Mm -hmm. And then three, to your point, you're going to have to move. Like the people that get the good jobs in sports don't want to leave those good jobs. So if you want to move up into those roles, you're going to have to move. So that made it tough for, for me to venture down that path, which led me down another path. So I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because a lot of people don't know that when they look at the glamorous Sunday afternoon football games and think, uh, you know, they want to go do that. Yeah. You mentioned uh, starting in flips and, and making some mistakes, even after you did the course. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about like, what, what mistakes did you make? Why did you get away from the flipping business? Just talk to us about your experience there. Um, we were trying to flip deals off the MLS. And one of our biggest problems was, it was really we didn't execute, right? We could have taken the program and retrofitted it to our area. But the two problems were, one, all the stuff they gave you was quick calculations based on square footage and stuff like that. And all the numbers were wrong in New York. Labor's higher, holding costs are higher, cost to do stuff is higher. People's expectations for finishes are higher too. So, you know, unless you're really flipping in like really low income places, which we didn't want to do, it was all off. And then two, a large part of the level of the program we got was you were supposed to have a coach to mentor you through it, who's in your area. And there wasn't a coach for hundreds of miles. So we had some guy in Maryland and there was just a very big disconnect. So again, there's people that flip on Long Island. I know, you know, a guy, you know, Charles Weinrub goes by handsome home buyer. He does hundreds of deals a year and he does it all in Long Island and he does great. He does a phenomenal business, great guy. And so it's possible, but we just kind of looked at it and we were like, I just don't see how this, the way we've been set up is going to work. And also too, you start factoring in just some of the other stuff as well. We are like, we'd rather pivot and look for something else than continue to try to beat our head against the wall. So, you know, we just started looking and networking and just got lucky. So by all means, nothing wrong with courses, nothing even wrong with the course we bought. It's worked well for tons of people and probably would work significantly better in other areas in the country. It just didn't work for us. And we also didn't implement it to the fullest either. So, you know, like we got to take ownership of that as well. How, uh, so when I think of flipping, I mean, I've flipped a couple of homes here and there, mostly burr my stuff, if I find it off a uh, wholesale or things like that, but how would you um, describe it to somebody that has a full-time W-2? Because you were working at stockbroker at the time, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah 10, I, 10, 12 hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think of flipping as like a full-time job in itself, especially if you're going to do it at scale. Did you run into any like time issues as well? or? Yeah. I mean, it's tough going back now. You know, it's been over, God, it's been close to six years now, five and a yeah. half years. Um. I mean, we were just so new. I mean, you're just like, you're just pulling a bunch of different directions, trying to find your feet. So, you know, we didn't even, you know, we never even did a deal. We never put one under contract for a flip. 
you know, I've got one failed flip to my name in Charleston, South Carolina that we lost money on. So it's like, you know, I, I can't even tell you exactly what and that went wrong, but yeah, I mean, you know, flipping one house a year, you can do, it's not anything too crazy. It's going to take you longer and it's going to cost you more than somebody who's doing it full time, but you can do it. Um, but good chance you're also not getting the best deal in the world. You're not getting the best margins in the world. And, you know, what you think you make, maybe, or maybe you don't get it, you know, unless you've got this great deal, right. Your, your cousin's grandma just passed away and, you know, they're looking to offload it and you happen to get it fantastic. Then maybe you do have a good deal, but, um, you know, it's definitely a lot of work and time and stuff and to do it right too. Cause there's a lot of people that flip and I'll see videos of like inspectors that go through flip homes. And sometimes it's pretty funny what people will do. So, you know, just because you flip a home and it looks good on paper doesn't mean you actually did the right stuff. And that's going to be a home that somebody's going to be happy with. Yeah. And when I think about it too, I mean, there's processes to all businesses, right? And when you're flipping homes, it's a very high volume, high velocity transactional business. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of different things moving at one time. For multifamily, it's a process as well, but it's a little bit slower, a little bit more strategic, a little bit more developing relationships for when time comes versus every single day, just trying to make that transaction or that volume happen. Yeah, I think it all depends on your strategy. You know, for me, most of my deals are pretty heavy value adds. So I'm basically flipping units to rent them. Um, so in a way I am a flipper, but for me, I'm not planning on flipping out of properties. You know, I'm planning on refinancing and holding. So, you know, I do get a liquid event where, you know, I get capital back and, you know, investors get capital back, but it's not like selling out of a deal. Um, you know, it might be anywhere from 40 to 100% of the initial principal back after two years. So not only is it a longer timeline and closing takes longer, it's just, a, it's just a very different process. Now you go in, you buy class A stabilized and you're just pushing rent or B plus, and you're just doing light value as then yeah, it's completely different. It's very easy to manage and maintain and it's not nearly as arduous, but for me, um, you know, I'm not worth 50 million bucks or even, you know, 2 million bucks. So I'm not out here trying to buy a, a four cap deal that makes me 5% a year and I can sit on it for the next five to 10 years. You know, I'm trying to make my money have velocity and have my money earn money. So I'm, you know, kind of in the weeds doing tougher deals, more capital intensive, more sweat equity intensive to really build that up uh, early on. And also, you know, to get really good returning deals as well. Yep. Yep. Now you mentioned in the multifamily space, you're looking at smaller and mid-size apartment complexes. Um, a lot of folks that I have on in multifamily always talk about the 150 units plus and 200 units and scale and go big or go home and all this kind of stuff. And I think you're, you're touching on a, a niche in the market that doesn't have a ton of competition. And if you do it right, has a lot of healthy margin in it. Mm -hmm. is, is that kind of why you picked that space? Can you help us understand like why, why did you decide to go small, medium size? Well, first of all, define what that is. And then why did you decide to pick that space? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all, you know, personal, what you define it as, but for me, I would say, you know, 10 to 80 units roughly is kind of in that space. Um, you know, when I think large, I think can sustain full-time staff mm -hmm. and you really don't hit that until you hit 80 units, but you got a 50 unit in Miami that's charging four grand a month. Well, that can probably afford to pay somebody. So it's, it's, it's a, um, a sliding scale on units and dollars, right? You've got a mobile home park that charges, you know, 200 bucks in lot rent. Well, you're going to need a few hundred units to support full-time staff. So, you know, it, it's a sliding scale. Um, for me, it was kind of two things. One, you know, I was already buying a deal that was 16 units 
So it wasn't like I, you know, cause that's what I could afford. Um, so I was already coming down to do that. It wasn't like, I was like, Oh, I'm going to buy 150 unit and start my business as well. So it was kind of like the, the horse came before the cart in a little bit of a way. Um, but also too, I just think there's a lot more opportunity here. You know, it's not super being this multifamily syndicator is not super difficult. You're just putting a bunch of different pieces together. And that's why you see so many people doing it. And there are very large payouts. So it's not anything crazy. The reason it's not difficult is property management is fantastic. And owning real estate and especially apartments is fantastic. You're basically buying a business that has an unlimited supply of customers and that everybody needs. You know, you look at most businesses and probably one of their most expensive line items on the expense side is marketing. Your marketing is one of your cheapest line items on apartments, which is fantastic. Unless you're class A, lease up, whatever. Um, but your bigger ones are taxes, insurance, utilities, payroll, property management. You know, those are all more than your marketing. So it's pretty easy to have, you know, a decent management company. And it's significantly easier to find decent management company at larger scales because any management company worth their salt is going to move up very quickly, right? Same amount of effort, much larger dollars. Um, so for me, I think there is somewhat of a void and there is the opportunity to find more niche product to compete against less sophisticated buyers and owners, which can work for my advantage where I may see something that they may not. However, in the inverse, they may also assume things that are never going to be true and therefore, you know, stuff sells for more than it should. Um, but for me, it was just one, a product of the first deal was 16 units. Two, I didn't want it to be too big that I couldn't handle it. And three, my first two deals were with my own money and very close family money to kind of build that track record and go forward. So now I'm working on our third deal right now, which is 20 units will knock on wood, hopefully goes under contract this week. Um, you know, that'll be about $800 million equity raise. And that'll be the first one with investors that I've been talking to for the past year. So, you know, it's just kind of a function of very different things. Um, but to get to 500 million will necessitate scaling up and, you know, going much larger. Cause again, I'm not going to buy, you know, I think when I broke it down, it was basically a 50% year over year increase on assets acquired. So the first year, 5 million, then like 8 million, then like 12 and so on and so forth. Eventually, it leads to year 10 acquiring $200 million. Well, I can't buy 100 properties that are $2 million each, or, you know, it would just be ridiculous. So, you know, eventually it will scale up. So, for now, it's let's see what we can do. Let's learn the business. Let's not overwhelm myself with the actual physical amount of units and people and tenants and stuff. And then eventually, as we build a really good foundation, scale from there. Yeah, that's so refreshing to hear because I think you hear the Grant Cardones out there that are always go big or go home. And there's a guy out there called Chad Carson that says, go small or go home, like stay within your lane, build up the fundamentals, get your sea legs under you and progress from there versus just jumping into a thousand units. Um, you're in Jacksonville today. Are you, are you only looking for properties in the Jacksonville market? Yes. So because of vertical integration, property management, and because the deals don't support onsite staff, it's pretty tough to set up management in a market you're far away from, um, unless you have some staff there. So like, I'm fortunate enough now I have a full-time property manager, part-time, full-time maintenance guy that kind of help with all of that stuff. Um, so to go in and just buy a one-off 10 unit in a th market three hours away is not super easy. And probably the dollars then aren't worth it. Um, and just back to your point too, about, you know, go big or go home. Like 
I looked at making sure that like this financially made sense, right? If buying 16 and 20 units didn't bring in enough dollars or made sense, I would have never done it. And I would have said, screw it, either go bigger or, you know, do something else. So, you know, you do have to make sure it works. You can't just be like, oh, I'm going to go contrarian just to do so. Um, it has to actually make, you know, financial sense and lifestyle sense in all the different avenues. Um, but yeah, for me looking in Jacksonville, you know, like, again, when I came down, I said, okay, well, I'm going to be hyper-focused on Jacksonville. Well, can I even do it here? Pulled a County list of all the properties from two to nine units and 10 units plus both in Duval County and Clay County. And just wanted to make sure that there was even enough deals out there that, you know, cause if I turned around and there was 50 properties, well, that means I'd have to own over the first five years, 50% of the supply. That's ridiculous. Would never yeah. happen. Fortunately, there's thousands of properties in the two to nine unit space. And there's hundreds and hundreds in the, you know, 10 to 80 unit space. Um, when you kind of drill it down, a lot of the deals are in areas that I wouldn't love to own in more of your, a lot in your D areas, a lot in your C, C minus, which for me, I'm trying to stay away from. I think the better areas, even if on paper, maybe aren't as great. I think the appreciation and downside is better. Um, so that is kind of one of the areas I'm looking at is starting to develop small to mid-sized properties. Cause I think the same thing where you have less competition because it's smaller applies the same way, if not five or 10 times greater, because, you know, your local doctor, doctor or lawyer can take down a 10 unit property, right? They just come up with the money, they buy it and it makes some money. And now they own real estate. Who cares whether they know what they're doing or not. The doctor is not going out and finding a piece of land to build 10 units. So you eliminate your competition immensely. I think the numbers work. I'm still learning more and understanding and finding builders and things of that nature to really make sure it makes sense. Uh, but my gut tells me it doesn't. There's a, a niche to be carved out as well. Um, so it's just kind of all the stuff I'm looking at. Yeah. One of the things I love about Jacksonville is how spread out it is. I think it's the largest county city in the country, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So, so Jacksonville and du Duval County make up the same area. They merged, I don't know how long ago. And yeah, it's the largest city by landmass in the country. Yep. And a ton of people moving to Florida, favorable taxes, military base there. It's got, a, it, I mean, a couple of financial institutions down there. It's got a lot mm -hmm. of things working in its favor there. Um, you've mentioned vertically integrated out there a couple of times. Can you define that for some of our listeners that, that might be a new concept? Yeah. I mean, it's basically just you know, having things in-house instead of outsourcing. So a lot of people like my last company, Toro, we would outsource property management to another company, uh, construction management, they would handle, or you'd have like some sort of owner's rep as well. So you have somebody on the ground day to day doing all of that stuff. Me, it's my company that's handling all that, you know, the, the manager and the maintenance person work for me. They're, you know, they're part of the JAG communities team. So it's about bringing that stuff internally, creating the systems processes and having the control over those aspects of the business. Yeah. So I, I, um, I want to ask this question to use directly because there's a, a couple of folks that I've talked to that are all in on the vertically integration. If you can own it in-house and own the full stack in the supply chain, the better for you. And there are a couple of folks out there that have said, no, I only want to do one thing, which is finding and acquiring multifamily units, for example. What, what is it that attracts you to the vertically integration of it um, uh, and bringing everything in-house? Yeah, if I was trying to scale as quickly as possible, maximize my dollars today, I would never be vertically integrated. 100% right. If you focus on one thing and do it well, you will go that much quicker. However, for me, I think the potential 
of a vertically integrated company is higher than that of one that is not. So I may be the world's worst property manager. That does not mean I'm going to be better than the company that outsources it. It's still on me to actually go out there and execute or to bring the people in to do it. The problem I see is when you are a syndicator, you know, like everybody knows about Henry Ford and the production line and people being good at one thing. A syndicator is not that. They're like, the, for me, it feels like the, the hub of like a bicycle wheel and you've got all these spokes going out and it's very, very inefficient, incredibly inefficient, uh, especially the renovation side of things. It's incredibly inefficient. You've got all these different vendors coming in you're trying to line them up, but they've got all these different clients and all that stuff. So for me, like, I actually want to bring my, you know, the renovation part of the business in-house as well. Like not just the construction management, like I want to have a rehab team, like five, you know, one, five, 10 people that like their job is to rehab the properties we own, like go in, renovate units. You're the one doing it. And yeah. You're still going to have plumbers and roofers and electricians. And maybe eventually you scale big enough to have those guys in-house, but you know, you've got to start somewhere, but it's incredibly uh, frustrating to have to try to be the central person to put those all together. And it's kind of like herding cats a lot of times where you can only control so much and then you've got to rely on other people to actually do what they say they're going to do. And sometimes things come up, right? People go away, people get sick. They're relying on somebody else, right? Like sometimes you go out to that spoke and they're the spoke of, you know, like, especially when you're dealing with, you know, mortgage broker, commercial, you know, uh, insurance broker, um, you know, a multifamily broker, right? They're another hub. So not only are you the hub connecting to a spoke, they're a hub with other spokes. So it's like, you know, you really go down kind of the chain and it's like, you know, you're not really dealing with that person. You're really dealing with the person a few links down that chain. So when you kind of go on that, it just really makes it inefficient. So the more for me that you can bring in house and have control over just increases that potential for efficiency, um, lower margins, lower costs, uh, which is only going to make the deal and returns better down the line. So yeah, it's really big undertaking. I'm not going to pretend that I do great at property management now. I think I do a decent job and it's really because it's my deals and I care. Um, but for me, it's about 10, 15, 25 years from now of building that foundation and growing on it. Yeah. I think what you're really talking about too, is the conflicting priorities, right? When you have it in-house, you are the priority. When you outsource it out, then you're conflicting with other priorities and other clients that that person may have. And the idea of the hub and spoke, and then when you go out on that spoke, you're actually in someone else's spoke at that point is actually, I mean, that's a really good thought and a good way to think about it. Yeah. I mean, the problem that I see is, you know, when you're a company, you're supposed to have, you know, a vision and goals and, um, you know, like your ways of doing things and your systems, your processes and all these different things that make your company have its identity. And when you work with somebody else, you try to align those visions as much as possible, but it's impossible because you're two different companies with two different visions and goals. So when you bring that in-house, it allows you to align those visions and goals and kind of encompass everything. Um, so if you can have property management, understanding why it is you're doing the renovations, you don't have to have an hour long conversation of why you want to do something the way you want to do. Um, you know, I've had conversations with property management companies where they don't understand how our company makes money. They didn't understand how it is, how it works when we raise money and why it is we do that stuff and all that stuff. And not that that's super critical to their business and how they execute, but maybe the greater level of understanding would 
help them understand why we request certain things or why we want things done or why we get frustrated sometimes. So it's just that disconnect um, that's sometimes very minimal or very great um, that when you can bring it in house, you can just align it and never have to worry about it and set it up. And yep. everybody kind of understands why things are going on and it is what it is. Yep. Also too, you know, just little things like, you know, when you create reports or send information, you know, if you have more than one property management company, you're getting a few different types of report and information, different ways. You've either got to aggregate it into your own report, which is time, or you've got to understand how to look at different reports all the time, which is inefficient. So it's like, which one do you choose type of thing? Yeah. And on that point, I mean, I'm in this big phase right now where I'm learning the cost of switching tasks more than anything. So to go from um, my W-2 job to then investing in real estate, to then doing a podcast, for instance, that's three different mindsets that I have to be in and going, it's easy when I time block it, it's easy when there's a hard stop to one activity and going to another, but when it's the integral part of your business, such as repairs, property management, reporting, things like that, that switching cost is going to add up over time. So I certainly see the efficiencies there. Yeah, hundred percent. It's something that I still struggle with, like switching back and forth and time blocking. Um, but when you can kind of get it down better, it's huge because people are like, oh, I'll just go from one to the other. And, you know, there's, there's plenty of studies and stuff that shows that it's not efficient and you actually waste time. So yep. yeah, it's, it's important. Yep. Well, I want to switch us to our last five, our last round here. It's called the five toppings. Our first topping is what is your favorite book or what's a book you've read recently or listened to recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Um, there's a few, I, I have not been the biggest reader in the past. So my scope of books read is not massive. Um, I really have enjoyed essentialism and the one thing, which is basically kind of contrary to going vertically integrated, but it's focusing on one thing. Um, so for me, what I've done recently is actually outsourced a few things I hadn't thought I would so like my bill paying and invoicing and some parts of asset management, I've outsourced to accountants for the time being with the intention of once my money spent there exceeds what it would cost to hire somebody, then I would make the switch. Um, you know, allowing me to focus on less today and but building the systems to have it integrated in the future um, has been super helpful over the past six months. Yeah, I've heard good things about essentialism. I haven't read it yet, but I've heard that book come up a couple of times now. So yeah. got to put that on the reading list. Yeah, they've got one really good, I'm more visual. They've got one really good graphic in there. Um, anybody can go probably find it, but it's two circles. Basically, it's a bunch of small arrows pointed outwards and then one really long arrow pointed up and basically saying that if you try to focus on too much, you don't go anywhere. If you focus on one thing, you go a lot further. And that's yep. where I was saying, if I was trying to focus on the immediate, I probably wouldn't be vertically integrated, but that's not my huge focus. Yep. Yep. Um, the second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the things that you do every single day. What is something that you do every single day? Something that I do every day. Um, I kind of sit down and plan out what I'm going to be doing every day. Um, I've also become a lot more structured on personal time and work time. So allowing me to just focus when I need to focus and be away when I need to be away. Um, but sitting down is being like, okay, here's, here's the things we have to get done. And you know, what we focus on, um, I think it's in the one thing or might be another one. It's like, you know, what's important now 
And it's like, just focus on that, get it done. And then, you know, move on to the next thing and just really prioritize it. So setting aside a few hours every morning to be like, okay, put the phone down, you know, close out the things I don't need. What do I need to do now? Whether that's maybe it's being on the phone and talking with investors, or maybe it's being on the phone and, you know, talking to brokers, whatever that thing is, it's focusing on it. But if it's something on the computer, getting rid of the other distractions and just focusing on it has been really great. Yeah. I mean, uh, I plan my week every Sunday and man, if I walk into a week and I don't do that, I am just swimming for the first two or three days. So I completely agree that that is one of the biggest hacks out there is just planning what is the most important thing and getting it done. Um, our, our third one is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Hmm. Probably. I don't know if I received it or just read it, but we overestimate what we can do a year in a year and underestimate what we can do in five. Sometimes I say five years, sometimes it's 10 years, but yeah, it's all that, right? It's just same thing as compound interest, right? Everything takes a long time until it starts building on each other. And then you look back five years later and you're like, how the hell did I get here? So that's basically it. Yep. Yep. Love it. Our fourth one is what's the thing you're most proud of in your life? Probably. It's hmm, a good question. Most proud of. Um, I think that I th- I've done a very good job of not overworking and sacrificing relationships. You know, I, I still have very good relationships with my family. Um, you know, a lot of my friends now are in New York. So those have been a little bit tougher the last year. But, you know, having good relationships with friends as well. Um, you know, I know a lot of people get sucked into work and, you know, will work relentlessly two, three jobs, all hours to try to escape the rat race and nothing wrong with that. But I think I've been able to find a pretty good balance between the two. Yeah, that's definitely something to be proud of. And, uh, I might want to pick your brain on that because that is not something I am good at. Um, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Probably my great, great grandfather. So JAG community stands for J.A. Grenzig and Son. My great, great grandfather started the electrical contracting business back in 1909. And every male on my dad's side has either owned or worked for it. My dad was the last one he broke the chain. He kind of, you know, he's the one that is the reason I'm not running the electrical contracting business instead of doing this. Um, but he started his own business called Chinesco products and then eventually sold it. So, you know, I come from a line of different business owners, which is pretty great. Um, and just my dad in general is very big into genealogy. So I think just being able to meet him, talk to him, kind of understand, you know, just see what the world was like and what their thought process was and all that stuff would be really cool. Yeah. I mean, owning a business in 1909 must've been so crazy because we forget how easy it is today to access information, to connect with different people, to learn and all that. And I mean, man, 1909, just starting a business in Long Island would be tough, 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 but sounds sounds like an interesting, an interesting story. Yeah, for sure. Um, Well, Chris, this has been fantastic. We'll have to have you back on to talk about the vertically integrated. I want to hear how your journey progresses over the years, but if our listeners wanted to reach out to you and connect and learn more about you, where could we send them? Yeah. uh, Two best places anywhere on social media, you know, just search Chris Grenzig uh, is great. The main one is probably Instagram. So at Chris.Grenzig, 
or LinkedIn decently active on not necessarily posting so much, but I check it frequently and message people. And that's just, I don't know what it is, but it's Chris Grenzig. So you can just find me. Um, if you want to email me, it's Chris at jag communities.com. That's also our website, which is going through a revamp right now. So depending on when you hear this money gets released, it may or may not look good right now. It's okay. Um, at some point too, we'll also have a link up there for anybody who wants to invest passively. So you just click the link, fill out the form, all that stuff. Uh, if it's not there, you can find that link in my bio at my Instagram profile. Um, I have been doing a podcast for the last two-ish years. We've kind of put it on pause. So if it's still up, it's called the Real Estate Investing Experience. Uh, you can find it on any platform or you can go to the reiexp.com. Awesome. Well, we'll leave all those links in the show notes. So make it super easy for people to reach out. Uh, cool. Chris, appreciate it. Thanks for joining us and uh, good luck. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.